I'm your host, Cullen, and this is Cauldron, a military history podcast. Louder the war horns growl and snarl, sharper the dragons bite and sting. Eric, the son of Hawk and Jarl, a death drink salt as the sea, pledges to thee, Olaf the king. Let's go back to late antiquity, to the steel blue waters of the Baltic Sea, where two lines of longships entangled in a desperate struggle. The winner lives, the loser drowns. Let's go back to the age of the Viking and the Battle of Svolder. All right, thanks for joining me again. So the first cycle of episodes in the Cauldron reboot is over, and it featured exclusively battles from antiquity in the truly ancient world. This next cycle is going to see us hop into that imaginary time machine and fast forward from the sandy beaches outside the city of Troy and zooming past the rise and fall of a dozen or more empires from Persia to Athens to Alexander to Carthage, finally to the powerhouse that was Rome. For a thousand years, Rome, in one of its many fashions, ruled much of modern Europe. And then came the barbarian hordes, the plague, rapid and incurable inflation, and a whole myriad of other factors that led to the great city's fall that uh, Gibbons will go on about in quite a bit of length. And with the dying of the light that was Rome, Europe descended into what was once known as the Dark Ages, a time in which life was uh, as cheap as it had ever been. But now most scholars agree that things weren't nearly as bleak or dark as they used to seem. But when Europe pretty rapidly went from a unified, centralized singularity to a shattered constellation of smaller petty kingdoms, things certainly became somewhat more interesting. A good mark for the beginning of the early Middle Ages or the late Antiquity period is the Huns burning their way through Central Europe and the fall of Rome itself to the Visigoths. If uh, you're interested in the Huns, we dive into those guys in one of the earlier episodes in Cauldron, so go ahead and, and check that out, and we'll definitely get to the fall of Rome at some point in the future. Anyways, both the early Middle Ages or the late Antiquity period are accepted terms used by scholars nowadays in lieu of the Dark Ages, which is a bit less fun and dramatic, uh, even if it is more accurate. From roughly 400 to 500 AD to 1000 to 1100 AD, these early Middle Ages were a period of upheaval and change for Europe time of turmoil and faith, a time of war and famine, a time of kings and priests, which now that I'm looking at the script and realize that that's what I wrote, um, it's pretty much every period in European and, and likely the world, uh, world's history. But our story today comes in at the tail end of the early Middle Ages, when the age of the Viking was all but over and the age of the night and castles was about to begin. Nobody is sure exactly what caused the Norsemen, or the men from the north, to sail into the unknown, bringing with them death and destruction. There are a whole bunch of different theories, and the truth is probably a mixture of them all. There was a population boom that rapidly made too many mouths for a region with such short growing seasons. There was a bit of climate change that compounded that issue. And then there was rampant and generational blood feuds and dynastic wars, and the drying up of fat targets that were nearby all probably played a role in pushing the fighting men of the north into going Viking. 
And then there was probably a good dose of just normal human avarice and adventure seeking to add into the mix. So whatever it was, the traditional raiding routes back and forth across the Baltic seemed to have uh, become not quite as favorable for the Vikings of Scandinavia, and they decided to turn their longships west and sail out in search of wealth and fame across the open sea. Now, Viking is actually a verb. You go Viking. Uh, Basically, you go raiding and adventuring at sea, and a Viking is an individual, obviously, who is, uh, translates essentially to sea bandit or pirate. In the post-Roman world, with no, with no uh, central governing body to coordinate all the necessary coastal defenses needed to keep the Vikings at bay, northern Europe was a rich target for the Norsemen. The early Middle Ages bore witness to a variety of barbarian invasions from outside of the old Roman world. And these all had their own way of shaping Europe as we know it today and changing the history of the world. But nothing quite took hold in the mind as the Viking whirlwind that ranged from about the 8th century AD until the 11th century. The Angles and Jutes and Saxons, all from Denmark and the Scandinavian region, had long before this time period invaded Britain. The Angles, in fact, gave the, the land its eventual name of England, and, and the Sutton Hoo ship was famously uh, from that time period. But those invasions had been less of a uh, raiding series, you know, less of a series of raids and more of a concerted effort to put down roots and settle and make a country of their own or a kingdom of their own in what is now England. The Viking Age started in earnest in the late 700s AD with the raid on Lindisfarne, a monastery off the coast of Northumbria. Now, monasteries would get hit over and over again throughout the Viking Age because they tended to be unprotected uh, and they were usually jammed full with the wealth of, of centuries or decades of offerings and payments to the Christian god. Uh, Being pagans, the Norsemen had no real qualms about taking from the god of Rome, and for decades the coastlines of northern France, all the British Isles, Spain, Portugal, even the Mediterranean had to regularly try to fend off these kind of smash-and-grab attacks of the Vikings against monasteries and unprotected coastal towns and villages. The Norsemen even sailed their way down the great rivers of Russia into the world of the Byzantines and in the, uh, into the world of the Middle East. Uh, and 500 years before Columbus, Vikings sighted and settled in North America for a brief time. So these guys were really um, kind of like a, an octopus in terms of sending out tentacles in every direction and going as far as they possibly could. Uh, beyond their incredible ability to roam and fight, Records show that in battle, few warriors could withstand the fearsome Norsemen. Time and time again, just the rage and the intensity of the Viking attack uh, could cow or break their opponents. The men of Norway, Denmark, and Sweden were not just warriors. They were not just sailors. They were not just adventurers. They were enterprising traders. They were shrewd merchants. Uh, They were incredible craftsmen. Uh, And they also happened to be the driving force behind one of the largest slave markets uh, and slave uh, commercial markets in history. Kings and cities eventually realized that fighting them wasn't worth it, and the Vikings started to 
run kind of a massive protection racket uh, that, that truly would have made Tony Soprano tear up. They'd show up outside of a city in force, threaten to attack it, the victim would pay a massive bribe, and then the Viking force would sometimes leave. Sometimes they'd set up camp and make even more money by trading and dealing with the locals. And then sometimes they would just, out of sheer buggery, they'd take the bribe and still attack and destroy the city. Uh, and then, like good farmers, the Vikings would leave that town or city for a couple of years, let it regain some wealth, and then boom. The longship prows would hit the beaches nearby the city again, and the start of the cycle all over. Uh, from smash and grab, the Norsemen eventually graduated to full-scale invasions, staking claim to foreign lands and cutting out kingdoms of their own all over northern Europe. The only thing keeping them from truly conquering abroad was a general instability back home. Scandinavia was in a constant state of war. Chieftains and kings and jarls all vying for the crowns of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. Sometimes trying to get all three of those at, in one go. Uh, and this kept any one man from really, truly gaining a powerful base in the homelands. The idea being that so long as no one person ruled all the north, the rest of northern Europe was relatively safe and it's with that struggle in mind that we get to today's tale. Harold Fairhair, born 870 AD, is generally considered the first of Norway's true kings. He, he was the original. He set the mold. Basically, he went in and disrupted the old system. And the original system for Norway was these little fiefdoms, these jarls who had a lot of power in a small amount of space. They were warband leaders, chieftains, small-time kings, and they did a lot of infighting and kind of... They, they continued that, that series of dynastic, blood feud, uh, family-type wars, and it kept anyone from becoming particularly powerful. Sometimes there would be, uh, you know, one chieftain or one jarl that had more control than the others, but not enough where he could dictate the path forward for the entirety of Norway. Well, Harold Fairhair changes that when he becomes king. Uh, his great-grandson is the star of today's episode, Olaf Tryggvason, but he had a number of, of offspring, and being a member of the Fairhair clan or the Harold Fairhair family would go a long way to kind of setting your... Uh, setting your standard in life. Uh, he dies in 930, and his son, Eric Bloodaxe, which I think is one of my favorite names of all time, he ends up taking over for his, his now dead father, and it's not a good start for Eric. It's kind of a rocky road for him because him and his wife, Gunhild, are kind of universally disliked by the people of Norway. In fact, they're so disliked that Eric's younger brother, Haken the Good who uh, was actually raised as a Christian in the court of King Ethelstan, he, uh, he takes over. He kind of usurps the throne and is the first Norwegian king to not only be Christian, but espouse Christianity. He didn't push it on his people, but he certainly talked about the benefits of becoming a Christian. However, Norway wasn't quite ready for a Christianized king, so... Haken the Good actually had to convert back to paganism in order to 
kind of rule as one of the... Uh, he wanted to appear more as one of his people, so he had to convert back to paganism in order to do that. When he died in 961 AD, his nephews, the sons of Eric and Gunhild, the detested, seized power. The strongest and most, most ruthless of Hawken the Good's nephews was Harold Greypelt. And in the nine years that he was in control, he went out of his way to kill anybody that maybe posed a threat to his power, including his own family, including his own blood. And one of those was his cousin, Trigva Olafsson, the father of Olaf. Uh, which means that when he, uh, when Harold Greypelt was eventually overthrown, in 970, until Olaf Tryggvason eventually took control of Norway in 995, Norway kind of reverted and devolved back into the original system it had, where it was a bunch of smaller kingdoms with jarls and war chieftains and petty kings, and these guys all vied for what little scraps of power that they could take. The slight difference here is that they all owed some kind of allegiance to one Jarl, Jarl Haken, who had nominal control over Norway at the behest or under the guidance of King Harald Bluetooth of Denmark. And eventually when Harald Bluetooth died, his son Sven Forkbeard would have that same kind of sway over Jarl Haken. And, and Jarl Harkin would eventually pose a real problem to Olaf Tryggvason because he saw himself as the kind of unacclaimed, undeclared king of Norway. Before we get to Svolder and the throne of Norway being taken by Olaf Tryggvason, it's important we tell a little bit of his story and a little bit about his life. Uh, he was born in 968, and obviously his father, Trigva, being killed by Harald Greypelt, Olaf's mom, uh, Astrid, was a widowed noblewoman, and she was in a very precarious position. She, was, she feared for her life and the life of her newborn son, so she fled Norway for Sweden in 969. Her overall plan was to try and get to her brother Sigurd in Russia. He was a member of the royal court of Valdemir of Novgorod. Uh, I saw one source that said it might have been Kiev, but I'm pretty sure... Uh, we're talking about Valdemir of Novgorod. Along the way, as they're crossing the Baltic Sea, they were assaulted by, you guessed it, Vikings. These Vikings in particular were from Estonia. And as they, uh, as they were wont to do, Vikings really take no no prisoners. They they take slaves or they kill everybody. So in this case, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the mother and son were either separated uh, and both sold into slavery or the mother was uh, killed in the process of taking the ships uh, and young Olaf was sent into slavery. Uh, he was eventually purchased by a couple in Estonia and they treated him apparently, according to the sources, fairly well. Um, and as far as, you know, slaves go, he was treated very well. Over time, uh, three-year-old Olaf Trygvason became nine-year-old Olaf Trygvason, and in 977, Valdemir of Novgorod sent his friend Sigurd to Estonia to collect taxes. Uh, in that role, Sigurd, maybe in one of the great coincidences of all history, stumbled upon 
his nephew. And according to Snorri Snurlson, uh, it goes like this. Quote, In the marketplace, he happened to observe a remarkably handsome boy, and as he could distinguish that he was a foreigner, he asked him his name and family. He answered him that his name was Olaf, that he was the son of Trigva Olafsson and Astrid. Then Sigurd knew that the boy was his sister's son, which I cannot, I'm sorry, end quote, so I cannot really believe that's the case. I mean, if it did happen, that's a wild story and an incredible historical coincidence. My main problem with this, and if you we're looking at it objectively and with a critical eye, how would he know? I, it just it just boggles. It, I can't wrap my head around. He had never seen this boy. In, even if he had, in some weird, maybe unknown circumstance, he had seen the baby Olaf. Still, ten years later, that baby doesn't look anything like the young boy or young man Olaf. Um, and so just on the off chance that he said, oh, that kid looks really handsome, I'm going to engage with him. It's I don't know. It just seems very strange. But according to Snorri, it happened, and we'll have to go with that. Um, Valdemir is brought the young Olaf by Sigurd and Valdemir takes him in as one of his own. He treats him like a prince. He treats him like royalty and he even lets him join his, uh, his royal retinue and Olaf goes about the next few years. He spends almost a decade there learning how to be a warrior. Uh, he becomes the best possible Viking that he can while still, on, so, on land in Russia. And actually, at some point, I guess at, at a very young age, he supposedly uh, commanded Russian warships, which, if that happened again, that's, that's wild. Uh, but it seems like a very unlikely thing for a 13-year-old to be given the, the, the reins of. Uh, but either way, whatever happened, it started to get a little dicey for Olaf because Valdemir became a little jealous uh, didn't quite like that this foreign kid from, you know, from nowhere all of a sudden is becoming this popular, famous, and somewhat wealthy warrior at his, uh, you know, while still under his control. So Valdemir uh, persuades him with, uh, you know, without actually telling him to leave. He, Olaf gets the, gets, sees the writing on the wall and decides, you know what, I'm 18 years old, it's 986, I'm going to go out and, uh, and go about creating my name as a Viking and start my career as a Viking in the Baltic. And he does that. And by all uh, accounts, he's pretty good at it. He's actually very good at it. He gets some local fame. He gets uh, a good amount of booty. He proves something that not just Vikings, but leaders in war throughout history would, would tell you time and time again is one of the most important factors in uh, in fighting, it's he proves that he's lucky. Uh, I think Captain Jack Aubrey and Napoleon Bonaparte have the same idea that, you know, I'll take a lucky man over a good man any day. And uh, I think you, you see that with Olaf Trygvason and a lot of the Vikings, uh, especially with the marauder and the, the pirate. There's There has to be an element of luck because so little planning um, can be done for what they do. Uh, the, you know, you can plan a massive invasion, you can plan a campaign, but a spur of the moment, you know, slapdash strike, 
there's really just, it's all improvisation, you know, to a certain degree, it's all improvisation, uh, which means that there has to be a lot of luck involved. So while Olaf Tryggvason's out there making his name as a Viking, making his fortune, he finds himself in a place called Wendland in northern Germany, where there's a Slavic people ruled by King Brusilov. He's got a daughter. Olaf doesn't have a wife, so he weds off his daughter Gira. Uh, by all accounts, this is a marriage of love uh, and somewhat happiness, because when she dies a few years later, Olaf is pretty much despondent, and in response to his feelings about that, he goes on an absolute tear. Uh, he raids and pillages and plunders from Frisia to Flanders. Uh, all the nooks and crannies along the Danish coastline are up for grabs, and he's bringing fire and death. In England, in the year 991, he wins a great battle at Malden. Um, Snorri Sturlston extends Olaf's British activities for quite a while and has him from 991 to 994 pretty much up and down and in and out of the entire coastline of the British Isles from England to Scotland, the Hebrides, the Isle of Man, all the way down the other side. And he actually ends up in the Scilly Islands on the very, very south, uh, southwest coast of England, where he meets a hermit, a very famous Christian hermit, maybe a monk, who, probably to save his own skin, gives a very fortuitous reading to Olaf. And uh, he tells Olaf, basically, go and uh, immediately become Christian and you'll become a, a king. Um, you will be, uh, you'll be very successful back in your homeland and, uh, but only if you become a Christian, Olaf is so kind of knocked over by this and, and finds the accuracy of the, the hermit's predictions to be so on point that he immediately has himself and all of his men baptized. But just because he's now Christian doesn't mean that Olaf has gone soft. In fact, it probably meant that he had to go the extra step in proving his um, fierceness and his ruthlessness. And so Olaf, when he finds himself partnered up with his future enemy Sven Forkbeard outside of London with 94 ships, he goes on a really, really brutal attack, setting fire to the city, uh, enforcing... Ethelred the Unready, the king of, of England at this point, to uh, basically give over a protection fee, a tribute. Uh, and this bribe is massive. It, is, uh, it eventually allows uh, Olaf to take 22,000 pounds of silver home with him when he heads back to Norway. And I think I might have said earlier that the, uh, the Battle of Malden ended in this bribe. That is incorrect. In 991, the Battle of Malden was won outright. Uh, it was 994 that the bribe by King Ethelred took place. Uh, so by 995, the Norwegians have grown tired of Jarl Haken and his, apparently he was rather lascivious and seems to have kind of made himself very unpopular with the locals because he had a tendency to take other Jarls and other noblemen's unwed daughters to bed and then quickly kick him to the curb. So the people of Norway are no longer uh, huge fans of Jarl Haken. And Olaf learns this and decides that, hey, 
This is a this is a very good fertile opportunity for him to claim that throne that he has been denied for so long and avenge the death of his father Trigva. So he decides to leave England, uh, which actually was again largely financed by the twenty two thousand pounds of silver he took off of Ethelred, and he goes to restore the rule of Harald Fairhair's line. Conveniently for Olaf, when he returned to Norway, he found out that Jarl Haken was actually beheaded by one of his own slaves, and so the job was kind of a, a fait accompli. Uh, but the Jarl's son, Eric, recognizing that the, the winds had kind of changed, fled to Sweden. So Olaf took a note of that and realized that was going to be a problem down the line. Uh, but in general, the takeover of Norway was fairly straightforward. There was really not much of a conflict at first, because in 996, Olaf Tryggvason called a thing, which was basically all the Jarls and powerful leaders of Norway came together in a general assembly type deal and voted him in as the official king of Norway. Uh, then he went about the job of kind of pacifying and converting. And Snorri Snurlson puts it this way. He says... Quote, he would either bring it to this that all Norway should be Christian or die, end quote. And Olaf didn't, uh, didn't wait around to kind of bring the rest of Norway into the fold of, of Christianity. He gave a pretty stark choice. You either converted, you were killed, you were banished, or you're mutilated. So the options weren't too many. It wasn't difficult, but it was certainly a weighty choice. Uh, and that that kind of stark choice was a seed for some future discontent. Not too many Norsemen or Norwegian people enjoyed the idea of just giving up their old gods and their old ways and traditions uh, or dying. Uh, the, it's, it's not an easy thing to just say, well, we'll get rid of everything we've ever known and done because this guy's going to kill us otherwise. Uh, he spent a good number of years going around Norway uh, trying to stamp down any pagan resistance, uh, converting wherever he could and as much as he could. Uh, but he also had to keep in mind that this is a very tenuous uh, control that he had over Norway. There was still a lot of political enemies in the weeds. There was a lot of resentment. There was a lot of uh, powerful factions within Norway that were vying for uh, a way out of this this new kingdom that he had created. Uh, again, one of uh, Eric Bloodaxe and, and the hated Gunhilda's son, who was still around, uh, he wasn't defeated until Olaf uh, killed him and, his, and broke his army in 999. Uh, there's a great example of how how kind of violent the conversion period uh, and the, the insistence that Olaf put on conversion uh, was. And it, it brings us to the next topic about the, the Viking longship. So I want to make sure I get this in here. But uh, what ended up happening at, at one point, Olaf goes up to a northern land called Helogaland, and he goes to uh, the king there who is... Uh, King Rode, and he captures him and he gives him a choice. He says, you can either die 
or convert. And Rode says, uh, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm not going to be converting today, uh, but, but you can do whatever you will. Olaf is so <laughs> upset about this. He takes a hollow reed or a, a hollow stick and he jams it down King Rode's throat and shoves a snake down the other end and a, and a burning poker behind the snake to force it to go deeper down his throat. Now the snake is in Rode's belly and it eats its way out, out of his side and kills him. Now that is a pretty rough way to go. Obviously he probably died long before the snake ate its way out of his side, but the message that that is sending is pretty intense and would go a long way at that time for uh, uh, creating more converts more quickly uh, because I don't think many people, I'm sure that Olaf, the next guy, he just uh, walked up with a stick in one hand and a snake in the other and said, you're going to convert or uh, we're going to have to do this again. I'm sure the answer was pretty quickly, uh, yeah, I'll convert. And another thing that happened in the uh, the conversion of Halogaland, Olaf came across a ship that he absolutely loved. It was called the Orman, and he thought it was the most beautiful ship he had ever seen. He takes it and he goes back to Trondheim, or Trondheim, and he tells his shipwrights, "I want one of these. I just want it bigger," and that becomes the Orman Langa, which is the long serpent which is his great ship so let's talk about the viking longship this is one of my favorite things about this age so let's just break it down real quick the viking longship is i mean let's just picture it so you're on a beach somewhere and there's a mist or a fog and out of that fog comes this beautiful dragon head it's carved intricately and ornately it's designed to strike fear but also have this kind of beauty to it and down off of its sleek neck at the base of the neck it opens up into this v shape that just kind of slides across the water and that v as it moves along, kind of widens out into a belly that's not clunky or misshapen, but svelte. And it seems to be more strong than anything. And those, the sides of that ship, they just kind of make you just, you see power there. The, the shields on the sides are colorfully painted and designed. The, the metal boss is shining in the sun. Uh, you know, the, the, the pennants hanging off the back um, the, the, the rigging all kind of working its way towards you. Uh, the Viking ship is one of those things that I would give a good deal of money to see uh, in action. Uh, the materials that they would have used, larger ships and, and the more prestigious the ship, the more likely it's going to be made of oak. But they also used ash and elm. Uh, the spars and rigging would have been, and the mast would have been made out of pine, mostly for the give and bend that it has. The actual sail itself was made of uh, woven wool. So it would actually, you know, oftentimes if they wanted to pick up a little bit more speed, they'd wet it so that it was almost solid and it would really pull in some air. Uh, the style of its construction is what makes it so unique. It gives it that, that really unique V shape 
that was a clinker style. So instead of fitting the different boards together, like in the Mediterranean galley, these were actually almost like shingles. They'd create a, a skeleton frame, and then around that skeleton frame, they would use iron nails to tack on the uh, overlapping pieces of planking. And then they would caulk in, in between each one to make it uh, you know, watertight. These boats, these longships, were made for speed. Incredibly, they could reach uh, seven to nine knots, uh, which, if you think about it, uh, that's like that's as fast as anything before the age of steam. Uh, the there was one that was uh, re a reconstruction made in the late 1800s that was sailed across the Atlantic, and that particular ship reached speeds of up to ten knots. So these things were fast, and they could maneuver really, really well. Um, they were highly maneuverable. They didn't have much of a draft, so their keel was really, really good at uh, maneuvering through shallow water. So they could go up rivers. Sandbanks weren't really a concern of theirs. Um, a lot of the times, they would actually use the shallow water as a defensive mechanism. If they were being chased by larger ships or uh, outnumbered, they could slip in and out of much shallower water because of the, the, the way that the keel was designed. They also had the ability to uh, travel in open water. So they could go out into the middle of the North Atlantic, out across the the North Sea, because the design of the ship allowed for a lot of give. They could twist and bend. The ship could move with the waves. Instead of being brittle, it was uh, malleable. So you're much, much more likely to make it um, on one of those journeys. And they could do it quickly, because uh, if you're reaching between 7 and 10 knots, uh, you can theoretically make it from Norway to England in 48 hours, you know, maybe three days. Now, obviously, ideal ship uh, conditions are unlikely in the North Atlantic uh, or in the North Sea. So you could probably add a few days, say five days, maybe six, um, and maybe as much as a week. But still, that's a relatively short journey for this time period. From Norway to uh, Iceland, you could make that trip in maybe two weeks. Uh, at this time period, that's that's like warp speed. So the Viking ship's design allowed for it to move really incredibly quickly. Uh, and it also gave it the special ability of being able to move in and out of the water. They had incredible navigation ability. Um, they were using a lot of uh, latitude. So basically they would use latitudinal direction, find their particular spot that they wanted to get to, and then just bang a left or a right depending on which direction they wanted to head. Uh, and, you, you know, it's not perfect, but it's it's definitely one way of going about finding your way around the map. Uh, the length of each one of these ships ranged from anywhere from 80 feet to as big as 140 feet. The most common, typically, probably between 85 and, and 105, 110 feet. Um, you know, obviously, each ship is going to be a little bit different. But again, one of the great aspects of the Viking longship, longship is that it wasn't just dependent on sails for propulsion. It also had oars. And the oars 
uh, would allow it to still maneuver when it was becalmed. It would allow it to uh, kind of have a secondary burst when needed. But they also give us an idea of how many men were on the ship. So a 34 pair of ore ship is going to have a crew of 68 and then probably an additional crew of, of a few more. Um, that is, uh, you know, not 100% of the time accurate, but it's a good starting point for telling how many men are on each ship. All right, so, you know, the history of Olaf and Norway before his reign, you know a little bit about the Viking longships. Now let's get to the damn battle. In 999, a wedding took place between Olaf and the sister of King Sven Forkbeard of Denmark. Her name was Thira or Tira, uh, and she was the ex-wife of that Brusilov of Wendland. And she married him, but the king of Wendland, King Brusilov, refused to send her with a dowry. And this obviously enraged Tira and probably enraged Olaf. And when Sven Forkbeard refused to cover the dowry for Brusilov, uh, Olaf was persuaded by Tira to go and get it from him by force. Uh, the dowry situation is up for grabs. Some of the sources I read said that this was not actually the reason that uh, Olaf eventually found himself in the Baltic Sea trying to make his way back to Norway when he was ambushed. Uh, some of them said that he was actually there trying to uh, get some allies, trying to get some backup. Uh, but either way, the end result was that Sven Forkbeard had created a situation where Olaf was uh, either getting the dowry back for his now wife or he was... Uh, concerned enough about the movements of his enemies that he was in search of allies of his own. Olaf agrees to, whatever the reason was, Olaf agrees to go grab some of his, his warships and take a little expedition down to the north coast of Germany in the Black Baltic Sea and uh, go about retrieving that dowry. Meanwhile, the Scandinavian kings that weren't named Olaf well, no, that's not true. One of them was named Olaf. The other Scandinavian kings, Sven Forkbeard of Denmark, like I said, King Olaf of Sweden, and the Norwegian Jarl Eric, who we had talked about earlier, who, when his father was beheaded, his lecherous father was beheaded by a slave, Jarl Eric realized that he was probably not wanted around. He ran to Sweden, and now the chickens have come home to roost because Jarl Eric has been whispering in Olaf of Sweden's ear this whole time like a grim worm tongue. And he's basically planted the seed of Olaf of Sweden. You'll get so rich. You'll be so famous if you take out this, this upstart Olaf. Well, the forces have now gathered and the, uh, the alliance of Jarl Eric, Sven Forkbeard, and Olaf of Sweden plan to ambush Olaf Tryggvason as he is trying to get out of the Baltic Sea and back to Norway. They sit and wait for him near an island called Svold, which is likely the island of, uh, I believe it's Rugen or Rugen, which is off the south coast of Denmark. It's a perfect spot to set a trap. You know he's going to have to 
go by there to get out of the Baltic Sea. You also know that he's probably going to resupply nearby that island before he makes the trip because he's going to want to take a straight shot uh, between Norway and Denmark, likely not wanting to stop too long near the the ports of Denmark, lest he be uh, seen and overtaken by Sven Forkbeard's forces. So he is trying to get home, and all of a sudden, 70 to maybe 130 ships uh, of the Allies come out uh, from behind the island of Svold and uh, appear in front of him. That means that they could have had as many as 4,400 uh, men, uh, whopping four to one in superiority. I also saw another source that put the Allied numbers at 300 ships, which is almost seven to 8,000 uh, soldiers for the Allies. Uh, I can't really picture that. Um, I'm going to go with the lower numbers because that seems more likely, but seven to 8,000 8, Vikings and 300 dragon ships would be very impressive. Um, unfortunately for Olaf, he had 11 ships, according to the source I'm going to go with, and that accounted for maybe six to 800, 600 to 800 men total. Uh, the other source that said the Allies had 300 ships also said Olaf had 71 ships and as many as 4,000 Vikings. I, I just, I, I've seen far more sources that say 11 versus 70 to 130. I only found one source that said 71 to 300 ships. So, uh, the, the, either way you look at it, the Allies have a significant uh, numerical superiority. Whether it be four to one or two to one, it's still a lot. Uh, and they certainly have a, a large superiority in ships, regardless of what numbers you go by. And we're going to find out why that's really important, because the Viking way of war is no different on land as it is on sea. Um, we'll get to that. But first, their weapons. Let's talk about those really briefly because we're going to go into them more next week when we talk about Klontarf. But the the Vikings, the Norsemen, they, they had really excellent iron weapons. They had iron swords that were about three feet long. Uh, imagine yourself swinging a baseball bat for however long that you need to swing it in order to stay alive. Uh, that's what you'd be looking at. They would be using spears anywhere from six to nine feet long with a two-foot iron head. Um, they had battle axes, the famous bearded axe. Uh, they would use small javelins. In some cases, you'd see some bow and arrows. Uh, the bows at this point were, were about six foot. They're made of yew. They would be like an early longbow type of weapon. Armor was chainmail, uh, you know, a metal, uh, a chainmail jerk, a uh, chainmail hauberk or top, um, you know, with leather underneath. Maybe a metal helmet, maybe a leather helmet, uh, but nothing too crazy because the, uh, the Viking really is fighting with speed and aggression, uh, and they're not too worried about defensive posturing or, or protecting themselves. The, their hope is that they break the enemy quickly. Uh, their methods on land is to create the shield wall. This is kind of a, a cross between the heroic fighting 
of of the ancient world and the more organized, more uh, deliberate uh, phalanx legion type fighting of of the more organized empires. So you've got the shield wall is the overlapping of the Viking or the Norseman shield and their shields are oak. They're typically iron embossed in the middle and they have an iron or leather strap going around the outside. They're usually about three feet in diameter uh, and they're good thick shields. They're made to stop axe blows uh, or at least catch them. And so they would overlap these shields and then the two lines would meet and there'd be a lot of pushing and battering and bashing uh, and then seeking out weak points. Once a weak point was created, whether it be by a berserker or just sheer weight, uh, that gap would eventually get filled in and exploited and expanded. And then as the successful side starts pouring through that gap, it's going to start cutting up the, the now disintegrating line into smaller and smaller little groups of men who would then be encircled and then speared or, you know, beaten down until they either surrender or more likely die. Now that is the method on land of a Viking battle. The same thing would happen at sea. The boats, the longships would be tied together and then the two lines of tied together longships would line up and they would go neck to neck and smash into each other and once one side was able to cut across to the other side it would start whittling it down until either the opponent surrendered uh, or sank or drowned or died and since now you have a little bit of an idea of how the vikings fought we'll get ourselves to the battle of svolder olaf sees the allied force rounding Rugen and coming right for him. He recognizes that he's wildly outnumbered, that there's really not much of a chance, but he has no other option. He can't go back. He'll be chased down. Uh, better to die, you know, with uh, while facing the enemy than die tired and uh, with a stab in the back. So he lashes his ships together with the Long Serpent, his flagship, in the center. And I saw one source say that the prow of his ship was facing the opponent's line. That would have created a kind of uh, almost like a Star Forts uh, bastion that would have kind of jutted out into the enemy's line, keeping them maybe off of the other ships and, and creating a kind of inflating fire almost. Um, against the oncoming allied line. Problem was that Olaf was so significantly outnumbered that he was almost immediately enveloped. And when the enemies showed up, Sven Fork, Forkbeard and Olaf of Sweden tied all their ships together to go ship to ship against Olaf. But then Jarl Eric split his fleet and put one at one end of of Olaf's flank uh, or at one flank of Olaf's line and then put some of his ships at the other end of Olaf's uh, line and proceeded to overwhelm each end of Olaf's ship line. 
And the problem really was the, this, this kind of nibbling away at his line forced the men from those ships, once they realized that the, that ship was lost, they'd retreat back to the next one and retreat back to the next one. And as that's happening, all of Olaf's men are falling back onto the main ship, which is the Long Serpent, and that's reducing their ability to fight against the other enemy in front of them, uh, Sven and Olaf of Sweden. So just a, a kind of knock-on effect is happening here where there's just too many enemies to deal with. And as men are trying to reduce the front and save themselves, they're also compounding the issue um, of, of fighting in general. And, and the fighting at this point is really, really intense. It's also incredibly difficult to imagine how like physically taxing this would be. You're in your armor, you've got your shield, you've got your sword or spear or axe. This is probably 30 pounds of kit. Uh, you're trying to move with the ship as it rocks and sways in the, the swell. Uh, you're dealing with the slippery salt water on, and then you've got blood that in other bodily fluids, probably all slicking down the sides of the now really slippery wood. Uh, as you're climbing up the side of your ship, you've got to deal with that. And then when you're climbing down into the other ship, you've got to deal with people swinging at you, striking at you, arrows being fired, uh, you know, javelins coming in, again, more blood, more body parts, more people, bodies themselves that you're tripping over. The Just the debris of ships is all over the place, and you're slipping and sliding. It's almost impossible to figure out how anybody would have had enough footing to, uh, to get a killing blow in on anybody. Um, but, you know, eventually, sheer weight, mass has, you know, as Napoleon said, quantity has a quality all its own. And in this particular battle, you see that very, very clearly. The the way in which it ends is just uh, well, it's, it's it's fairly depressing if you're a fan of King Olaf, because the end sees his entire line reduced down to just the Long Serpent, and then both ends of Jarl Eric's forces and Sven Forkbeard and Olaf of Sweden all combine and converge their attack on the Long Serpent and are able to force it. Um, Olaf, realizing that he's about to be killed or captured, which would be way worse for him, uh, decides to take a more noble way out. He jumps ship and is either drowned, which is the most likely thing, or in some mythologies here, he's not accounted for and swims away and is saved and goes on to a crusade to the Holy Lands to repent for his ill deeds as a young Viking. All right, so that's the Battle of Svoldor. Uh, I know it was a lot of uh, buildup, but the outcome is really, really interesting because you have uh, Olaf's entire force, probably between 600 and 800 are either killed or sent into slavery or uh, taken prisoner. Uh, all of his ships are captured or destroyed. We don't know how badly the Allies were, uh, you know, stricken. They probably lost a good amount of men. Uh, you always consider that when you have to take defensive positions, even at sea, uh, even on ships, 
especially against men who know that they're going to die or be sold into slavery, uh, you can account for some serious uh, resistance from them. So it's in all likelihood the Allies suffered pretty grievously themselves. But again, if you've got, whether it be two to one or four to one, when you've got those kind of numbers, you, you have a little bit to give. Uh, the fall of Olaf Tryggvason pretty much immediately ended the uh, the Norse crown as a thing because it, it quickly became a, almost a protectorate of Denmark. Uh, Denmark, for a brief moment, had a very, very uh, powerful little uh, span of years here where not only do they control Norway and, and much of the islands um, of the North Atlantic and the... Um, of the North Sea, but they also had the Dane law over in England. Uh, they're very strong at this moment in time. And the other thing that comes out of this is that the Scandinavian countries realize that being in intertwined with the rest of Europe within the, uh, the Christian community is probably a good thing. I think it's at this point that the kings of, of Sweden and Denmark and eventually Norway, which within, I think, 35 or 40 years eventually becomes uh, free from the Danish uh, yoke and becomes its own kingdom again. Uh, but these kings in Scandinavia realize there's something to be said about having a strong central government with a king at its head. And um, you know what you can't have when you're the strong central government, you can't have basically pirates running around uh, and and just kind of mucking things up wherever they go. So at the same time that you see the fall of, of Olaf uh, and the last gasps of the Norwegian kings for 35, 40 years, you start to see the end of the Viking Age, which is appropriate because Olaf was considered by many to be the best Viking at the height of the Viking Age. Um, and, you know, when when he dies and the Viking Age starts to fade away, that means that the rest of Europe can really start to breathe uh, and can start to focus less on uh, coastal fortresses and attack from far off barbarians and more on attacking each other and trying to kill their neighbors. Um, so with Olaf and the Battle of Svolder, we start to see the waning or the twilight of the Viking gods. Uh, and from there, we'll see what happens in the next battle, which is going to be the Battle of Clontarf, another moment that uh, would probably go towards the end of the Viking Age. So uh, thank you very much for hanging in there. I know this has been a long one, a little bit longer than I probably intended. I hope the lack of a script has made it um, not, I hope it hasn't made it um, in any way less enjoyable for you. Let me know what your thoughts are. I really need your feedback on this because it's kind of going to dictate what I do moving forward. Um, if you have any questions about sources or anything like that, give me a uh, shoot me an email or text or DM, DM me on social media. I'm on Twitter. I am on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, although I don't do the TikTok thing very often. Please don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe if you can. 
Uh, please share this podcast with your friends. If you know anybody that likes history or military history, share, share, share. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me, and it helps the show get seen and listened to more. All right. Thank you again for hanging in there, and uh, I look forward to talking to you guys next week. Next week at 8 o'clock, we'll be doing a live stream, and the, uh, the episode will follow soon after. All right. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>